sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinach. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. Well, these days, church-state relations are very complicated because, guess what? The state seems to have its hand in just about everything. And so, inevitably, there's a lot of overlap and a lot of uh, relationships. And how do we manage those relationships and preserve religious freedom? Our guest today is one of the, I would call him one of the deans of uh, the religious liberty community in our country, having served as Legislative Director for the American Jewish Committee for so many years. Richard Fulton, welcome back to Freedom's Ring. Great to be with you again. So we're going to talk today about new regulations that are in the works from the Department of Labor uh, dealing with federal contracts. So um, I guess my first question is, in what ways do religious organizations deal directly with the federal government. Let's get a context for what these regulations are, are all about. Sure. And let me first say also, being called a dean of anything usually just means you're getting old. Uh, but I'll take that as a compliment. And, and, and these days, of course, I'm with Except the Freedom Dean Club. Kelly, who really was a dean. Right. He was a dean. That's right. Uh, and, and these days, of course, I'm with the Religious Freedom Center of the Freedom Forum in Washington. So, uh, you know, I, I think it's it's very interesting how much we are testing these days what the right relationship is between religious institutions and the government. It is because of the changes. Uh, you know, we have the welfare state uh, that, that grew up in this country and most of uh, the West, uh, you know, going back to the earlier part of the 20th century. And the more the state was involved in providing for social welfare and services, uh, the more has potential that its regulations and its workings intersect with with the workings of all institutions, including religious institutions. Uh, but the fact is, already going back to the 19th century, uh, you had religious institutions providing social services uh, and receiving government funds to do that. And uh, and there already was a Supreme Court case back in the 19th century that tested whether or not uh, it was permissible for a, a religiously affiliated hospital to receive government funds to provide its services. So the question then becomes, what are the structures that are going to be in place when the government money flows uh, to religious institutions? And the major ways this happens is they get grants for specific projects uh, or they're contract, they're actual contractors with the government. So, you know, so much of the government's work is done through people, organizations, I should say, companies that contract with the government to provide services. And going back to the 1960s, uh, you know, a regulation was put in place, an executive order, uh, that said that uh, contractors, if they're going to contract with the government, they can't discriminate on the basis of, you know, not just not exhaustive list, but on the basis of, of race, sex, national origin, religion, and more recently, uh, sexual orientation and gender identity were added as prohibited bases of, of employment discrimination for somebody that's contracting with government. And also, not too long ago, uh, that is, during the President Bush's administration, uh, there was a, a codicil added to this law basically saying, an amendment, basically saying that religious organizations, as that term is defined in Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, prevents discrimination on the basis of employment, that, that certain kinds of religious organizations 
could make employment decisions on the basis of a particular faith of individuals. That is, uh, strictly reading strictly a, a Catholic religious institution uh, could decide it's only going to hire Catholics, and notwithstanding that, they could continue to contract with the government, although they couldn't discriminate on the basis of race, national origin, etc., and, and now sexual orientation or gender identity. So, uh, you know, these are some of the some of the background for this uh, for what's been going on with the Department of Labor, and gives a sense of uh, you know what contracts are prohibited to do, and also the special treatment that's given to religious organizations in terms of maintaining their religious identity. Well, so how did the new regulations then change what we've had in the past? So it, it does a couple of things, uh, more than a couple of things. But I think the key issues are this listing or definition of religious organizations I just mentioned has always been understood to mean very specific kinds of religious organizations. You know, the one that it's, it's organized as a nonprofit, it, it, uh, uh, it, it exists for the purpose of promulgating faith. Uh, it's not. Uh, it's it involves in it's involved in very what we think of as very specific kinds of religious activities. And what the uh, what this proposed rule would do is expand greatly uh, the definition of the kinds of organizations that could claim this kind of a religious exemption. Uh, so there'd be a lot more contractors, including for-profit corporations, that could say, "Well, maybe we're not organized as a nonprofit. Maybe we're not even organized as a as a, as a religious body of any." in any way that we traditionally think of as religious bodies, but nevertheless, we want to operate in accordance with our religious principles, uh, which includes being able to discriminate on the basis of religion. So that's the first problem, is this very expansive definition. They pick up language from existing civil rights law, but then redefine it in a way that provides a much broader exemption and allows many more kinds of organizations to engage in discrimination. And the second thing it does uh, is that you know the specific language of the executive the existing rule uh, is that uh, you're entitled to discriminate with respect to a particular faith, uh, but now uh, under this rule you're able to uh, require that they, that your employees adhere to the tenets of your faith, and you know that doesn't particularly trouble me if you're dealing with a, a church, uh, but the more you move away from you know, a sort of core of, of religious organizations, the more it's problematic that a, a federal contractor should be able to demand that employees uh, uh, adhere to a particular faith. In effect, you're allowing government money to be used in the context of, of discriminatory activity. Let me start with the first provision, because, you know, as you and I have discussed this before we did this radio show, you know, the Department of Labor regulations are sending signals to companies about what they can or cannot do, but these regulations don't actually change existing federal or state laws. So to the extent right. that for-profit businesses don't have any kind of religious exemption under federal or state laws, this is going to give them you know, a pass if they're contracting with the federal government, but it doesn't give them a pass from their obligations under state and federal law. And so, in a sense, it's creating a scenario where it may send the wrong signal to these companies that they're permitted to do something that, in fact, is illegal for them to do. Right. And, and even, you know, so first of all, there's federal law, because so what are the protected categories 
uh, under federal law. So you may be violating Title VII of the Civil Rights Act, the, the provisions having to do with employment discrimination. But even beyond that, the very executive order that this proposed rule is amending does also say uh, that thou shalt not discriminate on the basis of race, national origin, uh, sex, uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, etc. So in a way, this amendment puts the rule at war with itself. You know, it's sending employees, employers rather, the signal that they can discriminate on the basis of how somebody behaves, which arguably could extend to uh, employees that are, you know, engaged in activities that are prohibited by the faith of the, the employer. And, and, you know, a lot of this, uh, of the byplay and the, uh, the conflict right now is, is, is about protecting people of, against discrimination based on sexual orientation. And gender identity, how does, how does that all work out? So you've got this right rule that arguably is at war with itself. Uh, and who knows how that's going to come out? And yet, at the, and, but at the same time, you have an administration that by, uh, by uh, enacting this or, or attempting to enact it uh, is sending signals that it may look the other way when it comes to those kinds of, those kinds of discrimination. So it's, it's a really bad scenario, both on the merits, that is, we don't want government contractors to be allowed to discriminate. Uh, and it also uh, creates this uncertainty as what the what the law, uh, what the law actually is and what the responsibilities of the employer actually are. Well, it, it seems like uh, very poorly thought through policy and law, for one, but it also seems like it's just plain politically motivated, you know, because um, religious liberty, I think, has become one of the most critically important values for those who support this current administration and its willingness to, you know, to do a lot more in terms of protecting what they're now calling religious liberty, which for many of us seems more like entitlement than liberty, you know, because this is dealing with eligibility for government funds. Um, I know that. Uh, those who represent Seventh-day Adventist organizations have fought the good fight over many years uh, in doing grant applications and such, say, for health care, uh, to make sure that their religious freedoms are protected. Um, and oftentimes, you'll see contract provisions that seem to run roughshod over yeah. the freedoms of, of say, health care institutions. And that's an area where clearly there's room for, you know, for, I think for the federal government to say, yeah, we can, we can recognize the, the, the rights of religiously affiliated healthcare institutions, hospitals and such, and, and, uh, you know, research projects, but to do the same for, uh, secular hospitals or secular companies that say, well, you know, I now have a Christian CEO, so I want to be Christian or I have a, you know, some other faith. Um, to me, it just, uh, it's a bridge too far. Yeah, I think it's not, but the problem, there's no one-size-fits-all solution. And I think you have to take into account a lot of factors. Uh, you know, what's the nature of the institution? Uh, you know, what is the, uh, is it a for-profit institution? Or if it's not, uh, you know, to what extent is it tied into the religious mission of a particular particular faith? Uh, and, and I think one of the issues also has long been, if you're going to have safeguards against discrimination in place, uh, I mean, there is such a thing as they're going too far. One of the arguments we had, not about contracting, but about government grants, is uh, if one accepts a principle within the grant, within the project for which you're receiving a grant, 
uh, employer is, is discriminating on the basis of religion and who it hires, there's a problem there because it's funding a program and now somebody's taking that money and running the program and discriminating. That's to me, seems inherently problematic. What's different about the, the contracting rule that we're talking about is that it applies to the entire organization. And so, you know, it, on the one hand, you have what this proposed rule, which goes much too far in giving leeway to when there can be discrimination on the basis of religion, which can translate into discrimination on the basis of, of sexual orientation, et cetera, as well. Uh, and so it goes too far. And on the other hand, do we have to do something to insulate the parts of the organization that's receiving the contract so that the parts of that organization that are not involved in government services are not tied down quite as much uh, by those government regulations and are able to still act in a fashion that's consistent with their religious identity? Uh, I don't have an easy answer to that, but I'm just raising the question and then really highlighting that these are very difficult issues for us, too. Well, and I will say, you know, someone who is working within a denominational structure and protective of, you know, our desire to preserve our status as sectarian institutions that have the right to make hiring decisions based on our faith. We know that if we started hiring a lot of people who were not of our faith, we might no longer be regarded as sufficiently religious to enjoy that protection. Um, I think if there's a, a big takeaway for our listeners here, because some of this gets uh, confusing in the details, the big takeaway has to be just because the news media reports something as religious freedom, uh, it ain't necessarily so. And the proverbial or actual devil really is in the detail. Our guest today yeah, is I think Richard that's... Fulton. Uh, you agree with that, Richard? I agree with that, and, and you mentioned Dean oh. Kelly earlier, so let me just say, Dean Kelly very much like to say, with King's shilling comes the king. So, you know, uh, the other aspect yeah. of this is, if you're a religious organization and you're getting government money, uh, you better be aware that you're inviting a level of complexity uh, and possibly threats to your religious autonomy that you otherwise wouldn't have had to deal with. Well, we, we're over time. Our guest, Richard Fulton, this has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Rana. Until next week. Let freedom ring.